0: Listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast, powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, a locally owned, award-winning neighborhood brewery that celebrates Toronto's stories and culture. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Ivy Knight. After a decade working in restaurant kitchens, Ivy pivoted to become a writer and journalist, as well as serving as the creative force of her own marketing agency. As a freelance writer, her byline can be found in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Food and Wine, Rolling Stone, and many others. She has also previously been nominated for the Landsberg Award for investigative work with the Globe and Mail. Ivy is also a cultural programmer, creating custom events for clients, including Absolute Vodka and HarperCollins, as well as creating ad campaigns and producing events for clients, including Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment and the Food Network. Welcome, Ivy, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you?
1: Uh, Thank you for having me, Andrew. I am good and I am In Parkdale, in the West End.
0: I get the sense from your social media posts that you are waking up grumpy this morning, that John Tory has won a third term as mayor of Toronto. What is your problem with Mayor Tory? Oh, um,
1: uh, I don't know where to start. I threw you off there. Well, I don't know where to start. (laughs) I mean, there are a lot. I don't really want to dwell on it because I am not thrilled that he's still our mayor. But just I guess if I had to pick one thing, it was that thanks to his vote, the police, the Toronto police budget cracked one billion in 2022. Considering what we've been through in humanity over the last few years that our police are getting over a million, a billion dollars for their budget. It just makes me sick. And John Tory is a toady and Doug Ford is a war criminal. and the two of them together are going to destroy this city
0: did you have a preferred option that you would have liked to see or or kind of anything except john tory or did you have one candidate that kind of struck a chord with you
1: i was i voted for gill i i just honestly anybody would have been better i really don't care put anybody in there
0: you're ready for a change
1: yeah i think everybody Uh is
0: I want to ask about your neighborhood. you mentioned Parkdale. Have you lived there long and and yet? what do you like about that particular neighborhood of Toronto?
1: Well, I have lived in Parkdale since I moved to Toronto in two thousand and one so um I don't know i no I lived near High Park the first first like three or four months in Toronto. But then I moved to Parkdale and I remember my friends, the few friends that I had in Toronto, I didn't know a lot of people. They said Parkdale. Oh, Crackdale. You don't want to live there. (laughs) Yeah. But the rents were the cheapest and I was a line cook. So that's where we went. And we've been here ever since we started out on King and Spencer in the sketchiest building, uh, you've ever seen. And, um, it overlooked an abandoned swimming pool filled with garbage. Yikes. Uh, yeah. But, you know, we've been in Parkdale ever since. Now we live near uh, off of Queen. And I love this part of town. Even as it's been gentrified, it still feels like a real neighborhood. And so many people who work in the service industry live in Parkdale. Mm. So that's that's another thing that I love about it.
0: Well, let's go back and fill in this whole story. With your permission, we're going to go All the way back, and get the Ivy Knight story. Where were you born? And describe your upbringing, please.
1: I was born in Alert Bay, B.C., uh, which is very remote. I was delivered by a shit-faced doctor a week before Christmas. Wow. He was coming from a Christmas party. And uh, I grew up in Prince Edward Island. Then when, as soon as I could, I escaped because I wanted to live in a city, so my girlfriends and I all moved to Vancouver, which okay. is a really great starter city, because uh, it's small and beautiful and manageable, and uh, just, you know, it has just enough wildness to it, but not too much. So yeah, we moved to Vancouver, and that's where I met my future husband, and with him I moved to Austin. Oh. And then after three years in Austin, we moved to Toronto and we've been here ever
0: since so this is quite a bit of geography starting in BC over to PEI down to Texas up to Toronto and so how long have you been in Toronto now in total is that since 2000
1: 2001 so 20 years Uh, sorry 21 years
0: that makes you almost a lifer in this town
1: Mm
0: mm-hmm now as soon as you got to Toronto were you already in the restaurant industry or is that where you entered the restaurant industry
1: no, I started cooking professionally when I was in Texas. Um, I left Texas and went down to Kingston, Ontario, and worked at Shea Piggy. Oh, yes. Because um, <laughs> my husband is a Kingston boy, and that's where he had worked, so he got me a job there. So uh, Chef Vicky took me on for a summer uh, on Garde Manger.
0: I have to ask you what that is
1: uh, garmanger. It's, uh, the appetizer station. Okay. So not main courses, appetizers, salads, things like that. It's where you would start as a new cook.
0: What was your training at that point? If any, or learn on the job.
1: I had no training. Um, the food network had just launched in America. So sitting in Texas, I had started watching the food network and I was really obsessed. And, um, My first kitchen was Shea Piggy, and everyone who worked at Shea Piggy was very uh, staunchly against culinary school. They Mm. all thought it was a big waste of money and a big waste of time, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful I didn't go to culinary school. It's not something that anyone needs. Um, Don't waste your money. You do not need student loans because you'll never make a dime in this stupid business. Uh, if you want to learn how to cook, get a job in a restaurant. So that's and what I did. When you,
0: <laughs> and when you came over to Shea Piggy, you started out, you were then, uh, did you move around within kind of roles in the kitchen? And how did you see your future? You, you loved it right away? Or what would you say?
1: Yeah, I loved it right away. I loved the insanity of it and the intensity of it. And um i loved being around like-minded people who were obsessed with food but i didn't ever um have this burning desire to be a head chef Mm -hmm. i i didn't i didn't really care too much about moving up i think just trying to learn my station in an insane restaurant that was so busy and I started there in the spring before the patio opened. And when the patio opened, they doubled their capacity. And it just, it was a really good training ground for somebody who wants to get into the business because it was a tiny kitchen. Nothing was modern or sleek about it. It was like cobbled together equipment from the seventies and eighties and whatever. And uh, tiny, tiny, tiny kitchen pumping out insane numbers. And doing really good food and yeah there was no there was no way that a person who wasn't how do I put this like if you did a week in that kitchen and stayed then you were in in this industry for good <laughs> right yeah because I saw a lot of people try it and not stick around and it's just it just depends on your mentality but for me mostly it was it was really the people and the kind of people that kitchens attract that's always been the thing that that I've been drawn to the most.
0: Well, it's funny that a shout out to my sister Paula who lives over at the other end of the city from you over in the beach. She's a Queens grad and this is she's been out for years and years and years. When we were going back to Kingston just last weekend, her number one recommendation is you got to go to Shea Peggy. <laughs> How did you transition, Ivy, from Kingston? You had moved, as you say, with your husband to Toronto. How did you get into the Toronto restaurant industry?
1: Well, I I only did um, a few months. I I think I did five months or four months at Shea Piggy. And then I went back to Texas. Okay. And I I was a pizziolo in Texas. So a wood-burning pizza oven in Austin during a heat wave is legitimate. (laughs) That's hot. Yeah, it was really hot. Anyway, uh, yeah, so the rest of my time in Austin, I was a pizziolo. And then when we moved to Toronto, I got a job at a restaurant here. And the the chef... Did I email my resume or fax it? This was a long time ago. I might have faxed it. (laughs) Could have been Uh, a fax. It could have been. So the chef, Sagar, he is from Sri Lanka. And... He, oh, so great. It worked in my favor that English was his second language because he read Shea Piggy on my resume as Shea Panisse. And he hired me. He hired me with (laughs) basically no questions asked, sight unseen. I don't even, I think maybe we did a phone interview. And uh, so then, yeah, I moved to Toronto and I started working with Sagar. And most of the crew were guys from Sri Lanka. So like all my, my first intro to Toronto was a crew of guys from Sri Lanka taking me around and partying with them and, you know, learning how to cook with them. It was amazing.
0: Your experience in Toronto, 10 years in the kitchens, you came to kind of a little more prominence in a 2018 documentary, The Heat, A Kitchen Revolution. This was a TVO original directed by Maya Gallus, and it offered a look at the male-dominated industry and gender disparity in the culinary world. Ivy, how would you get involved in this doc? And maybe you want to kind of explain uh, what it was about.
1: Oh, yeah. So the doc, Maya uh, reached out to me. She asked me, because she knew I was a food writer and a cook. So she asked me if I could connect her to some Women working in kitchens for this doc that she was doing so I connected her to a few people and then she was asked I don't I'm not sure exactly how it happened I think she just asked me a few of the questions that she was going to be asking the women and through my responses which got quite uh, heated and soap boxy she said, well maybe I should interview you for the documentary that's where we went from there and um, I loved what the doc turned into. I thought, I think it's a great um, historical document that probably mm, will not, never seem dated, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) Mm. Well, let's talk about that a little. Did you, did you have any trepidation on pulling the curtain back from kind of exposing the restaurant back of the house environment for all to see?
1: No, not really. I've been, disgusted with so much of the restaurant industry since my very first job at Shea Piggy. When I was learning, this is, and I would say, why is it like this? Or why is this? And and people would say, that's the way it is. That's just the way it is. That is how kitchens operate. Deal with it, suck it up, that's it. And it, I've been fighting against it and fighting against owners, You know, asking me to come in and work and then punch in two hours later or not paying for overtime or rape jokes or what have you, all of that has been around since the start. And as much as I've loved the industry, I've hated it. So when Maya gave me the chance to sort of rant a little bit about it, I was happy to do so.
0: I want to talk a little bit about one comment you just made there. You talked about recognizing the disparity in the definition of what it meant to work in a kitchen. For example, you have to have passion versus your right to earn a living wage. And And how did that kind of run into you and 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 you obviously had a problem with it
1: yeah i had a problem with it i don't think everything crystallized into the way i talk about it now it took a lot of experience to understand how i felt about it and there's a lot of indoctrination also you know um so i was definitely uh a big part of my own subjugation in kitchens I learned very well how to not negotiate for myself. Um, I learned very well how to just laugh at rape jokes, talk the way that people talked, to turn into what I have called a dickless man in order mm. to uh, fit in and get by. But it's, that doesn't mean that the whole time I was like, yeah, right on, I love this. <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't love it. But I don't think I had the words for it or the, I don't think I could really see it until, as, as well until I was fully out. And then when I was fully out, it started to really, I started to understand it better and see the part that I had played in it. And then I've spent the rest of my time since uh, trying to rectify, reconcile who I was then with who I am now and try to make change within the industry as much as I can as one person.
0: Ivy, you were in that restaurant industry for 10 years, but you've, you've mentioned before that you knew at five years you wanted to get out. How did you know this, and and why did it take you another five years to actually exit?
1: Well, poverty is a powerful thing. Yep. It really is. And, I mean, ask anyone who's worked at 7-Eleven for a long time. They're not there because they have a ton of options. When you're poor, you stick with a job. Also... Kitchens are different now. Restaurants are different now because we have social media. We have a million ways to find a job, to access chefs, to access restaurants. Whereas when I was cooking, none of that existed. You had to know somebody to get in to a kitchen that... Like, if you're working at a certain level, you don't want to go to Subway, right? You want to move up. You want to keep moving up. So I wanted to work in fine dining and... I didn't really. I always worked in just below fine dining. And to move up, you had to know somebody. And I never really could make connections. I could never really make it work. So that's one of the reasons that I started the group that I started on Facebook in 2009, I think. The Food and Wine Industry Navigator, which now has 45,000 members. And that is a group for people who are looking for work in Toronto to uh, find work. And it's, it's blossomed into much more than that. But initially, it was like somebody needs a resource to be able to get out of kitchens that are toxic and move mm-hmm. into ones that are good because there are lots of good ones. And my best advice to people if you're in a toxic kitchen is to quit and get out and go to a good one. Mm-hmm. They don't deserve your labor.
0: It's been almost five years since that documentary, The Heat, came out what has or has not changed in terms of uh, gender disparity in the culinary world
1: well you know the heat came out before me too that changed a lot of things but a lot of things stayed the same you know uh the the biggest thing about me too and about the pandemic because first we had me too and that got people talking and then we had the pandemic where everyone in restaurants essentially lost their jobs And so all of a sudden, it didn't matter that you were poor and trapped in a job or that you didn't really have options or that you had some little bit of loyalty to the place you work. All of a sudden, every place was closed. So who cares? So you could speak out. And I found that a lot of restaurant employees were speaking out and just saying enough is enough. Um, So even if all the things that were being spoken out against have not changed, the conversation has begun. And the... The thing about all industries is that the people who are the leaders are not the leaders forever. A new generation is always coming up right behind them. So everybody who was on top of the game in Toronto before the pandemic, there's a new generation coming up who've experienced the pandemic as workers who are going to be owners and leaders this year, next year, in the next few years. And I think that what's happened to them and to anybody who is a worker – throughout Me Too and the pandemic that when they get a chance to be a leader they're going to do it differently I don't know how you couldn't mm-hmm. and I mean the, the labor shortage is not because there's uh, less people in the labor pool it's because there are less people willing to work in a terrible place and nobody wants to admit that they, they'd rather say nobody wants to work which is we all know is bullshit people want to work, people have to work In this economy with John Tory, fuck, everybody needs a job right now more than ever. So people want to work, but they just don't want to work for assholes and they don't want to be treated like garbage and they want to be paid. So things are changing. I have a lot of faith that in the next five years, we're going to see much change.
0: And certainly, as you note, the conversations have started and the awareness has increased. The Toronto Legends podcast is powered by the Henderson Brewing Company where you can try this month's limited edition beer, Amelia Red Heifewiesen, inspired by Amelia Earhart's passion for flying that started right here in Toronto. Go to HendersonBrewing.com to order now, or visit their taproom and retail store at 128A Sterling Road, located along the West Toronto Railpath. Henderson Brewing and the Toronto Legends podcast, a great local partnership. Ivy, I want to talk about your pivot. You went from the kitchen to writing about the kitchen. How did this come about?
1: So, yeah, I'm sorry. You asked earlier about why in year five I knew I didn't want to be in the kitchen and I said poverty. But it was also that I knew I didn't want to be a head chef. Because whenever I had a time in my 10 years in kitchens where I was in charge, I was never a head chef. I was never a sous chef. At most I was a tournoi. Um, But whenever I was in charge of the kitchen, if it got really busy and got really stressful, I lost my mind. I was a rage machine. I scared myself. So I I knew that I had been trained. I I thought it was all me that was terrible. But now I know that it was just like that's the way I was trained because that's what I saw. I didn't know mm-hmm. any better. I didn't know how to lead a team through a stressful service without resorting to violence uh, with my language or with my uh, actions. So I knew I couldn't be a head chef. I didn't want to be, and I had never really had any desire to be that. So I, what happened one night, we had had a terrible service. This is year five of my career, and... A lot of things had gone wrong in that service, and at the end of service, I was complaining about all these things that had gone wrong. And my chef at the time said, "Shut up! I don't want to hear it." Uh, he's like, "He's like, if you want to complain, why don't you write about it? You got so much to complain about, write about it." Mm-hmm. And I had always been a writer, but I had always written fiction. Okay. And not going anywhere. I wasn't Margaret Atwood or anything. I just would scribble little fiction things. And I had never thought about writing nonfiction, but I thought, yeah, I will write about this because I, there's so, like I've told you already, there's so many things about this industry I don't like. Why don't I start writing them down? So the food writer in the city that I most admired was James Chatto, who is, I would say, a Toronto legend. And uh, he had a book launch that was happening at the Toronto Reference Library. So I wrote a restaurant review, I wrote sort of a memoir piece, and then I wrote something about a, more of a funny vice-like thing about being at a restaurant and the server being high on coke. That was more okay. of like comedy. <laughs> and it was, it was based in reality, but it was partially fiction. So I put those together as a portfolio and I went to see James and he was, he had a lineup of people that he was signing his book for and I was very nervous and when I got to him I said, I'm a line cook and I want to be a writer and I've put together some writing, would you give me advice, take a look at it and give me some advice? And he was so kind and he smiled and he said, that's wonderful, I would love to. And I Mm. practically started crying because it was like (laughs) the most kindness. (laughs) It was so, you know, when somebody's so kind to you in an unexpected moment, when also you're kind of beaten down and thinking, I'm no good. (laughs) And so he was like literally an angel from heaven in that moment. And I gave him my little portfolio. And the next day, he emailed me the next day and said, you're extremely talented and I want to help you. Uh, get your writing out there in the world and it was just like wow who is this guy he really helped me and and you know within a year or I think it was I wrote for free for about two years hmm. and then I started writing for the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star but that didn't pay enough I mean I was on the cover of the Toronto Star food section above the fold many times but I was still working brunch um, mm-hmm. but I got a job with Food Network, and that allowed me to get paid enough that I could finally leave the kitchen.
0: And let's talk a little more, if you may, about James Chadow. Everyone needs a good mentor. So in addition to him kind of kick-starting you and reaffirming you, your skills, the way you felt about it, how has your relationship continued with him, and, and does he continue to be a good mentor for you?
1: Yeah, so with James, um, I would see him over the years. and. Uh, always, you know, thanking him and saying, you're the best. And thank you for giving me my career. And he was always lovely. But we never hung out. And then during the pandemic, I thought of him and I just thought, this is crazy. Like, I'm so grateful to this guy. I wouldn't be where I am without him and his benevolence. And I really should get in touch because everybody's at home during lockdown. So I emailed him and we started corresponding and then when restaurants opened up we went for lunch and we now go to lunch once a month. And it's been fabulous. And we Yeah. We just have a wonderful time. He's great.
0: Isn't that great? And and as you know, you, you get kind of a different personality, a different relationship when it's not all about work.
1: Yes, exactly. I'm not always asking him for favors now. So I'm sure that's, <laughs> that's a <good>. relief. <laughs>
0: Well, he obviously had a good recognition. You got to be nice to people coming up because eventually you're going to be, it's going to rebalance, so to speak, and you can have a fulsome relationship. Yes. Ivy, I want to talk about some of your writing. I, I am no intellectual, but I do read The New Yorker. I always love it. And of course, you have had pieces in there. How did that come about? And that is that kind of the pinnacle of writing to be in The New Yorker, or am I uh, misinterpreting it?
1: Well, for me, it's the pinnacle. For me, it was like the biggest... Uh, brass ring that I could go for and I decided I think four years ago uh, that I was gonna start attempting to pitch because it's a real fortress it's very hard to get in or they don't want anyone to know so it took a long time and I know some people at the New Yorker and so there were three different women at the New Yorker two writers and one cartoonist who all were very helpful with advice and with sort of telling me to keep the faith because my first pitch, my very first pitch was accepted, but they were going to print, I had a 24 hour turnaround and I did it, but the story wasn't right for, it was for the talk of the town section and it wasn't right. And the editor said, this is really good, but it's not the, it's not right for the section. We haven't worked together before. There's no time to finesse it and get it in. Mm-hmm. And it was a timely story. It couldn't run any other time. It had to run that mm-hmm. week. And she said, so I'm sorry, I'm going to kill it. And I <laughs> I just laid on my desk and cried. Oh. Uh, I was like, I'm a wonderkin. My very first pitch, I get in. This is the start of something great. And then, you know, 24 hours later, I'm crying on my desk. Anyway, it took another... 6 months I think before she accepted another story or it might have been a year. I don't know. I there wow. was a long it was a long process. Wow. The whole process from beginning to actually seeing it in print was 4 years. Wow. You know, from first saying I want to be in the New Yorker to seeing something in print was 4 years. So, uh yeah, so I had another pitch, she accepted it and then It took two years from the time she accepted it till it ran
2: Hmm.
1: yeah or it might be a year and a half something like that I can't remember but anyway it was a big thrill when it finally got into print and you know I was able to write about one of my heroes Scott Thompson from kids in the hall so that was really exciting and that's the only time I've written for the New Yorker I have pitched many times since And they haven't accepted them. And I I know it's sort of like I'll probably pitch them for the rest of my life. And if I never get in again, that's quite all right. Because it is. There's a documentary about the New Yorker cartoons. I've Uh, seen it.
2: It was very good.
1: It's so good. And there's a man in that documentary who, who does a, he's done a few New Yorker covers, illustrated covers. And he shows his first one. And it's, I think, from the 60s. And he said, this is my first one. And this was so exciting. This was the best day of my life when they accepted this drawing. And then he says, and this is my next one. And it's 15 years later. Oh, and wow. so I think of him sometimes, and it's like he kept showing his drawings, and then he has the two covers to hang on his wall. It's worth it. To me, it's worth it. The New Yorker is the gold standard. So if I'm only in there once, that's fine.
0: <laughs> Ivy, you've re-energized me. Every Sunday is the deadline for the Cartoon Caption Contest, and I would submit one every Sunday, and after a number of weeks, I said, I'm never going to get chosen, I'm never going to win, and you have just proven to me you got to stick with it. So Ivy, my commitment to you is this, as of this Sunday, I'm putting in another submission for the Caption Contest.
1: You should. I love I the will. caption contest. I can never think of <laughs> captions for it, but when I see them, I'm like, ah, oh, that's brilliant.
0: <laughs> yeah, or I've, I could have thought of that. So I'm going to keep going. <laughs> social media, you talked a little about your Facebook group, which has obviously been big and and has developed over time. I want to ask in general social media do you embrace it, despise it? What is the role of social media now in your career? Is that a good feedback tool or does it horrify you?
1: Uh, no, I think social media is great. I mean, that I started making memes when I was investigating sexual predator at the height of Me Too, and I was basically living under a gag order while I did this investigation. I couldn't talk to anybody in the industry because I had because it was so se- top secret. So I started making memes just as a w- pressure release, and that's just been a real gift that keeps on giving. I love making memes. I love making fun of the restaurant business, and I love hearing from. Chefs all over the world who who resonate, you know, when I make fun of Dan Barber for not paying his staff and hearing from all these chefs saying, thank you. I hate that mm-hmm. guy. He ruined my life. It's wonderful. Uh, so yeah, uh, social media is great. I think it helps that I'm in my 40s. I don't know that it would be as as helpful if I was a kid or in my, or a teenager or in my 20s even. I think there's a lot of crap out there and that it's not a trusted news source, you know, um, mm-hmm. as much as I love Diet Prada and whatever else, I don't use it yeah. as a news source, you know, <laughs> so the proliferation of fake news scares me a little bit and social media is big on that. But it also gives a voice to people who previously were voiceless, so you know, you take the good with the bad.
0: And do you find it a, a useful at all as a tool for a feedback for your writing?
1: Um, yeah, I find it useful. Oh, yeah, it's useful in a million different ways. I mean, some of the people that I've profiled, because I love to write profiles, uh, are people that I found online or connected to online. And my career, I don't think would be what it was without social media and the ability to make connections the way I have. Like, I, the only reason I was able to profile Paulina Alexis from Reservoir Dogs Or sorry, Reservation Dogs. Yeah. (laughs) God. Um, The only reason I was able to profile her was because I had been following Sterling Harjo, the showrunner, years, years, years before Reservation Dogs, because he used to have a, a comedy troupe, and I was a fan of his work, and have been in touch with him, and wanted to write about him, and actually his friendship with Taika, before they made Reservation Dogs. And uh, yeah, so I love social media for that because I'm just some chick in Toronto, but I'm able to access people all over the world, have better connections than I would have if uh, if it didn't exist.
0: Well, something else that's big in the news, connection related, not social media, is Michelin, the system of rating restaurants. And I want your take on this. As you know, Toronto has finally been acknowledged in the Michelin restaurant rating system. Is this overdue or much ado about nothing?
1: It's hard for me to answer because, you know, just on principle, I don't like Michelin or world's 50 best because they're so obsessed with white men and Eurocentric food. But I do know that those are the only real ranking systems that are recognized on planet earth right now. So yeah, I love Toronto and I love what we have to offer here. And I am glad that we have Michelin here because it gives us cred with the rest of the dining community and the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm glad of that, for sure. And I'm glad of it for people who are working in those restaurants that are able to, you know, have Michelin on their resume now. It's really important. Um, But that being said, Toronto is the most multicultural city on the planet. Uh, I've had people try to dispute me on this, but believe me, I've done the research. Toronto is the most multicultural city on the planet the most places on earth are represented here culinarily and not just um as a fun concept but as like the food from any place you can think of is represented here by a person who actually grew up in that place Mm -hmm. and knows that food intimately you know what i mean yep So it's not just me, a white girl, saying, oh, I'm going to make some Tibetan momos. It's like people from (laughs) Tibet are here making momos, people from Nepal, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I could go on. But every place on earth that you can think of is represented here, and that doesn't exist anywhere else. That's not necessarily going to be reflected in Michelin rankings because there's a lot of racism, you know, in how we rank food and, and, you know, even the term ethnic food. Regardless of all of that, I think any attention that Toronto gets for its food scene is good because ours is unparalleled.
0: And on that note, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You may have to reveal some of your hidden gems because I'm going to ask you for a hidden gem, Ivy. Maybe for maybe one for breakfast, one for lunch, one for dinner. Anything you want to point out to our listeners that may not be on everyone's radar?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I really have... You know just a few favorite spots that I go to all the time and I love diners so the Skyline Diner is it's been open since 1962 it's on Queen West and uh, I go there all the time I take all my meetings there <laughs> it's my favorite place so I go there for breakfast lunch or dinner but uh, let's say that's that's uh, lunch breakfast <laughs> for me on the weekend breakfast or brunch because they open at 10:30. Is Sky Dragon which is on the top floor of the Dragon City Mall in Chinatown and they do dim sum and uh, they often have the carts out nobody else has carts anymore I love Sky Dragon so much it is my oh my god it's my favorite place and if you sit there is there are some seats along the window where you have a perfect view of the CN Tower so if you have people visiting from out of town that's where to sit everyone i know from out of town because i come from pei so so many islanders come to visit me i sit them there then the ladies come by with the carts and it's just like christmas yeah you know <laughs> it's just like what is in these baskets it's so exciting uh and then for dinner i would have to say Edulis. Edulis is a, is i don't know if it's a hidden gem it's just a gem and toby and michael are an inc- incredible chef team and what they do is unbelievable and they deserve the Michel- their Michelin star and I'm so glad that they got one. Uh, I don't think they really care too much. They're just, <laughs> they just care about like making the, the best. I don't know if I've ever known fine dining chefs who love their customers as much as Toby and Michael.
0: I got a, uh, I got a funny little story for you. My previous uh, life was I had a rental moving box business if you can believe it. So I'd bring <laughs> you these plastic bins, you'd move and then I'd pick up the bins. And every person that I delivered bins to was about to move, and I, I always wanted to know what they were up to. And one day I delivered to people named Toby and Michael. And I said, what do you guys do? And they said, oh, we have a restaurant. Okay, whatever. And when I picked up their bins from their new place, they told me where it was. And I said, well, I'll check out your restaurant, whatever, this edgeless, I don't know what it is. And so I took my wife, and suddenly I was a hero, because I was apparently on the leading edge of the food scene so <laughs> I stumbled upon it and you're right they were great to me then and I had a great experience and uh, those were three excellent recommendations oh good Ivy I want to ask you about any uh, kind of celebrity interactions whether it was for work whether you're meeting someone for an interview or someone you've just run into do you have any interesting uh, uh, stories from running into people whether for work or pleasure
1: uh, um. <laughs> Well, I, I just saw some family yesterday, and my stepmother asked me about my friend Bourdain.
2: Mm. And
1: uh, I said, you mean, she said, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. And I said, Anthony Bourdain? And she said, yeah. <laughs> and she said, did he die, your friend? And I said, oh, my goodness. I said... He's not my friend, but you know, I interviewed him a number of times and I had lunch with him once, which is one of my most cherished, you know, experiences of my life, but we're not friends. And she looked very disappointed. And I said to her, um, he was like a huge celebrity you know there mm-hmm. i could not be friends with him i was a mere mortal and and i said yeah and he passed away a few years ago and it was really devastating and she she'd looked sad and sort of a little bit pissed and i said what's going on with you and it turns out i think she was telling other people in the family that i was friends with him that i was uh-huh. friend, that her stepdaughter was tight with him it's like no that wasn't the case but yeah you know he was he was a living legend so to spend any time with him was was amazing.
0: Was was he, however, considered the original kind of uh, rageaholic in the kitchen? And and what did you learn when you got to spend time with him about his kitchen persona versus his, uh, you know, real life persona?
1: Um, I think his real life persona was the same. I don't know about r- raging in the kitchen, like that. Exa- the the example of that that is most prevalent in pop culture was Gordon Ramsay from the start, and it always has been. Anthony, our Tony, just showed the reality of kitchen life with, with his, this, his first book. The way he talked about restaurant life was so... Like, he's just a brilliant writer, and he was our voice. He was the voice of everyone in kitchens, because we didn't have a voice before that. Julia Child certainly wasn't our voice, and Martha Stewart mm-hmm. certainly wasn't, but he was. Mm-hmm. So we worshipped him. Uh, everyone who worked in kitchens when Kitchen Confidential came out absolutely worshipped him. And um, he was in person just like he was on the page and just like he was in his TV shows. But, I mean, like I said, I wasn't his best friend, so I just saw the, that side of him. Yeah, and, uh, yeah we lost uh, a great man, but he left behind an incredible legacy, so I, we have to be thankful for that
0: absolutely and as you say he lives on certainly with his television programming and he exposed so many people to so many different not only food styles but places around the world ivy you have a boutique marketing agency you create work for a group of clients you want to talk a little about that and and what you're working on
1: no not really i mean i do have this uh little marketing agency and i love it it's a lot of fun i do that with my partner yvonne it's like for a very select list of clients. So we're not, we're not super, we don't promote.
0: Well, I will give you a chance to promote whatever else you're working on that you wanna talk about. What do you got planned for the remainder of this year and going forward into 2023?
1: Well, I'm doing a lot of writing and uh, my most recent stories for Food & Wine, I'm really proud of. Uh, I wrote one story about these um, Toronto siblings who are from Iran, who own a restaurant on Queen West, and just how they use that restaurant for activism. So mm-hmm. I'm really proud of that story, especially in light of what's happening in Iran right now. That's up at Food and & Wine. And then my latest story for Food & Wine is about a chef in Scarborough named Alin, Alim Syed, who was shot and paralyzed and continues to be a chef. And just about his mm. journey uh, over the last decade to come to terms with the senseless crime that happened to him, and to make peace with it. So yeah, I'm really proud of those two pieces, and I love writing for Food and Wine. My editor there is Kat Kinsman, and she lets me write. She lets me write things that aren't exactly clickbait, and they're not recipe focused because I don't really care about recipes all that much. So yeah, that's been that's been really great working, writing for them.
0: And where can we best follow you and know what you're up to? How do you like people to keep track of you?
1: Well, uh, I guess Instagram is best Ivy pork chop night. If you want to have fun and if you're in the restaurant business or in food in any way, then my meme account, LA Celine is, uh, is where to go.
0: Excellent. Well, I want to thank you for your time today and I I hope you have a Good fall season as we head into the uh, holiday season. I wish you continued success.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew.
0: And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by Henderson Brewing Company. And on behalf of Ivy Knight, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo.